Welcome, everyone. My name is Amanda Laxon. I am one of your hosts for the Goddard in the World podcast. This is a project of the Goddard Alumni Council, and we are highlighting Goddard alumni accomplishments out in the world. My co-host is Casey Corona. Hey, Casey. Hey, Amanda. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. So I'm super excited today because we get to introduce uh, one of my best friends, uh, Mike Alvarez. Uh, He is a two-time graduate of Goddard College uh, in both the IMA programs and the MFA programs. Mike and I were at Goddard at the same time. We were we just became super fast friends. <laughs> We're both Filipino. Um, he he has a very wicked, wonderful sense of humor. And uh, his family, I'm in New York, and he, he has been all over. But he has, his family is in New Jersey. And so he'll come into town. He'll take the bus. He'll come into town. And before he goes over to New Jersey, um the bus comes into Port Authority, which is 42nd Street and 8th <laughs> Avenue. And pre-pandemic, sorry, this is, that should probably be obvious, but <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he would come in and um, before he would go to Jersey, he would, ask, he would text and ask if I wanted to meet him for lunch at the Korean barbecue place because that's right. about 10 blocks from from Port Authority and so we would meet and basically just stay. This is a 24 hour barbecue place um, (laughs) and they don't close between lunch and dinner and at lunch, (laughs) this is the best part because they used to allow you to cook your own because that's like a big feature of Korean barbecue, right? And so you have like the the stoves on the table. so that's upstairs. I, I'll plug the restaurant. It's called Numanjo. And if we ever get out of this COVID, uh, I'm super excited to go back. Um, but they, at lunchtime, they have now just, well, you know, pre-COVID, they had stopped allowing people to make their own to do the barbecue mm. on the tables um, during lunch because it just took so long. <laughs> like, right. People would just sit there for hours. <laughs> and so, um, and it was always the more popular one. And you could do that upstairs. Downstairs, it's much, it's a much smaller dining area, but it's right next to the kitchen and, and the bathrooms actually. Um, but they would see people who didn't who didn't need to make their own stuff (laughs) that that, because they didn't have the the built-in ovens or or rather stoves on the um downstairs tables and so uh mike and i learned this trick pretty early (laughs) uh because because everyone is trying to go upstairs and we're like, whatever, we don't care. We'll go downstairs. And they're like, you right. know, you can't cook your own food. And I remember asking, I'm like, will you cook it for me? <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, mean like, I didn't so- understand. Like, I was like, what do you, okay. And I was like, but you'll cook it right in the like <laughs> kitchen. They're like, yeah, you just, you can't do it yourself. Or like, cool, we're at a restaurant. We don't want to cook our own food. <laughs> So, so then, so, so we, 
I know. We like scammed them for the rest. Of, not scammed, <laughs> but like that's what we did for the rest of the time that we, um, and like you know, ever since we've like always right. just sat downstairs. Um, sometimes I will arrive and Mike is sitting. They. <laughs> I don't know if you know Casey, but like uh, when you go to Korea, you probably do. Like when you go to a Korean restaurant, um, they give you all those little wonderful sides. Um, yes. Yes. Right. Like before your food comes, so it's right. like twelve <laughs> little dishes <laughs> like on your oh, table. Oh, this is the meal for free. What's happening? Yes. <laughs> I know. It's I, like I, I, I'm like, wait, I didn't order this, but. Um, um, so sometimes I will be uh, like, I will arrive and Mike, like Mike has already been seated because it wasn't like that busy that day. And yeah. he'll just have this like entire spread of, I think it's called Jap Chai, the little dishes. He'll just have this entire spread in front of him. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like, he's like feasting in the corner. Um, so yeah, so I really miss him. I miss our conversations Aww. in person. Like we would spend the like hours there, um, and then go to Grace Coffee House, which is like two doors down. And uh, can't wait until we can see each other in person yeah. again. And you know, let me just say, uh, Mike is such an interesting and fun um, person. It was so nice to meet him for <laughs> for this podcast, and so entertaining. And um, I can see why you just love spending time at the Korean barbecue mm-hmm. and the coffee shop with him, and how New York it would feel to go into that kind of space and have that time to chat and to discuss um, intellectual and funny and just all kinds of things in between. It, it, he seems like a really um, really smart, really engaging, really funny and great person uh, to be a friend with. So uh, that's, that's wonderful that you guys are so close and have been since Goddard. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the topics that we discussed in this interview and that he studies like that he's an expert in are not like laugh out loud <laughs> kind right. of topics. Right. Like, so his book, his new book is called Paradox, The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity, um, which is uh, different psychobiographies that he wrote on artists that have committed suicide. Um, mm. And I have the book in my hands. I am very excited to like dive into it. I know some of it because um, – this was some of the work he was working on at Goddard. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has, he has such an empathetic approach uh, to the artists and humanistic <laughs> approach, like whole holistic approach to, yes. you know, discussing a person's life. And mm. um, that's, that was a thread in our in our discussion that you'll hear. Uh, he recognized that there are themes in his work um, about humans who have been on the margins or mar- marginalized right. somehow, and um, how he's interested in talking about them and writing about them from their point of view mm. uh, and studying them from their point of view, like subjectively. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, he has so much other work too. It's, it's kind of crazy, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. Casey, how did you feel about the, yeah. the discussion that we had? 
Yeah, it's it's amazing to have someone that um, has been through so much and yet is giving back so much. And so that empathy is just clear um, in Mike's work. And um, it's really sort of um, – it, it makes you feel um, both uh, smarter um, listening to him and, and what he's <laughs> done, but also it makes you feel more empathetic, um, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amanda, that doing so simultaneously I think is difficult. Um, and he has a way to explain things in both a um, – you know, logical, but also an emotional standpoint. And it, it takes away some of the ideas that maybe people have grown up with around suicide or um, depression or, um, you know, some of these elements or, or end-of-life care and, and you know, these, these shame or cultural biases mm-hmm. or any of those things where we may have um, – you know, uh, marginalized or cornered this idea, right? And how we put this oppression or or um, blame, and that's kind of been removed. And Mike is doing a way to shed light and, and open up sort of this conversation. And that that was beautiful, and uh, it, it's been wonderful to get to know him um, through this podcast for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. So, without further ado, uh, I hope you enjoy our interview with Mike, Mike Alvarez, Doctor Mike Alvarez. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to welcome our guest today to the God in the World podcast. His name is Dr. Mike Alvarez. He is a dear friend of mine. Uh, We graduated together from Goddard in 2010 from the Individualized Master of Arts program. And he then went on to take another degree at Goddard, uh, the MFAW in Vermont, uh, and graduated there in 2013. Dr. Alvarez is a Filipino writer and scholar who studies narratives of health and illness, communication about suicide and end of life, and stigmatized individuals' use of digital platforms to co-create meaning and community. He is the author of The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity, and he has completed a memoir of his past struggle with mental health and suicide titled The Color of Dusk. He is also lead author of another book in progress, A Plague for Our Time, Dying and Death in the Age of COVID-19. Dr. Alvarez is currently postdoctoral diversity and innovation scholar at the University of New Hampshire, where he teaches end-of-life communication. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Amanda, Casey. I'm (laughs) glad to be here. Welcome, Mike. We're so glad to have you. So, Mike, um, you did two degrees at Goddard. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to Goddard um, the first time? The first time. I know there are two times. (laughs) Yes, the first time, and then we'll get to the second time. (laughs) So, I I mean, when I was looking for – I knew I wanted to – go into graduate school. And Mm -hmm. I I had a burning project that I had been working on, uh, on suicide and creativity, which is the subject of my latest book, uh, which was published just um, a few months ago in November. And because uh, when I completed my undergrad degree at Rutgers, I had worked on this thesis on that very subject. And I, it was a series of psychobiographical studies uh, f- focusing specifically on three people at the time, Yukio Mishima, the Japanese author and playwright, uh, the poet Sylvia Plath, and the photographer Diane Arbus. 
<clears throat> and when I finished that thesis, I, you know, as many college students do, I got a job uh, that that I I was a research assistant. Well, first I was a residential counselor and crisis line operator for a halfway home for people with diagnosable mental health conditions. And then shortly after that, that was in New York City. And then shortly after that, I took on the role of as a program coordinator and research assistant at an eating disorders um, clinic. And But my mind constantly goes back to that project that I was doing as an undergrad. But I couldn't find a graduate program that can accommodate not just my interests, but the the methodologies and the you know and the process that uh, that I that it took me to produce that senior thesis. Um, you know, in psych- psychology is very post-positivist. It mm. um, you know pretty privileges quantitative or over qualitative and interpretive methodologies. And you know, there's room for qual- quantitative methodologies, and it's something that I have done and and thought useful at the time, but it it wasn't where my heart really was. And I knew that I it, there was no way I could do a graduate degree in psychology. Most programs wouldn't support the kind of work that I do. Mm. So I decided when I found out about the individualized studies MA program, I, you know, when I first heard about it, my heart just skipped a beat <laughs> because <laughs> wait a minute, you can, you can create your own program of study. And I, when I found out about it, I found out about it from my partner actually. And, um, and when I, when I learned about it, I basically put together an application in 10 days. Um, I, I sent it off and, you know, I think within a month or a month and a half, I, or I, I mean, it was pretty quick turnaround, but I, I got a call from the admissions office saying that you know I I was accepted. Actually, when when I when I got a call, I I believe it was David DeLuca. <laughs> um, hmm. uh, I, I I think it was him who was in the admissions office at the time, and. He had asked me actually. Well, I we, I could also forward your application to the psychology program, mm. but but I said I like the creativity and flexibility and freedom to create your own curriculum that's afforded by the IMA program, mm-hmm. and that's what led me to that to to the IMA program. <laughs> so it's just that's I could awesome. I could craft a program of study based on this interest. Um, that's yeah. great. You talked about a post-positivist attitude um, in psychology. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Sure. I, I mean, when when I say post-positivism, it's a very loaded word that refers to a lot okay. of things. When one of the one of the chief characteristics of post-positivism, at least in the realm of psychology and um, the study of the human mind and behavior, is uh, the Cartesian dualism, uh, which Mm -hmm. envisions the mind as radically split from the body, but also envisions the mind as radically split from other minds and the world. And uh, it, you know, people are, we are beings in the world, uh, you know, to borrow the words of Heidegger, um, with hyphens um, <laughs> between between those words, and to <laughs> emphasize intersubjectivity, that you can't really come to an understanding of individual thought, um, action, human behavior, and conduct divorced from the relational context in which we live, suffer, thrive, love and learn as human beings. So uh, I wanted to to honor the context 
in and the relational context, especially in which a lot of uh, you know mental health conditions that we see unfold. That's so and interesting. Another aspect. Oh, thank you. I, and I was just going to say another aspect of, of post-positivism is just the assumption that there is an objective reality that is measurable and observable, and which often excludes from consideration things that are not directly observable. And I wanted to focus on those things too, like things like hopes, aspirations, dreams, unconscious yearnings. They may not be directly measurable, but they are just as valuable to our personal and social lives. It, it seems to make a lot of sense that you'd be drawn to that individualized study with the creativity in that, you know, around the psychology and allowing for that interconnectivity to sort of exist, right? I think a lot of um, students and, and um, people who are at Goddard are looking for that kind of um, interconnectivity and also how that sort of relates and whatever other subject matter um, they're interesting. And as an educator, a, a learner, and the idea of lifelong learning and holistic ed and that kind of stuff, it makes complete sense that that wouldn't, um, that shouldn't be stopped at things like psychology and mental health. And the idea of creativity is such an interesting aspect to bring out of that because so many um, people have um, a creative outlet to help with their um, mental health challenges. And, and um, mm -hmm. so that's so nice to explore the, the um, qualitative realm of that and what that looks like in hopes and aspirations, Mike. Yeah. And, and just going to what you said, I, I feel as if, uh, the whole theme of my work that I think really resonated with Goddard, Goddard's learning model is the uh, just connectedness. I, I feel as if um, you know Goddard. At Goddard, we are not just an aggregate of learners doing their own thing. We, even though we only meet eight days per semester during the residency, we really the program and the the the, the college as a whole emphasizes. This, a sense of community, uh, a, a sense of community that I, when I, during my psychology studies, I didn't really find, despite the fact that I was in a traditional face-to-face -face learning environment where I am surrounded by fellow learners all year round, whereas at Goddard, we're only together for, you know, the first however many days of the residency. And yet there is a sense of connectivity that's just palpable from the very beginning, which can really facilitate creativity. And and I think one thing about Goddard too that I really appreciated is that just the how it enabled me to find my own creative outlets. Because I study creativity, but to study creativity and and to tap into my own creativity are they're 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 related, but it's not automatic. You know, just because mm -hmm. I study creativity, it doesn't mean I'm allowing myself output for my own creativity. And, mm -hmm. and at Goddard, I, you know, I realized that I, it's, I owe it to myself to do that. Was there someone at Goddard that encouraged you to explore your own creativity and how? I think, I mean, I think I would, it's, it's, I would say everyone there sure. <laughs> that I met in the program during the residencies, but I, in particular, my, my advisors uh, were really encouraging and allowed me to weave in a variety of creative outputs. Uh, so I, I would, during my time in the IMA program, I worked with uh, 
well, first Jim Sparrow, uh, and mm-hmm. then Ellie Epp, and and then Francis Charette, uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I for my culminating semester, I worked with Jim as my first my primary advisor, and Francis as the second reader, and I for they all they were great in that Jim allowed me to weave in memoir, like memoir mm-hmm. excerpts into my packet work at Goddard, and Ellie Epp allowed me to do the same and also encouraged me to pursue other modes of um, writing. In this case, I began to dabble into poetry, which to this day remains not my strongest suit. <laughs> you know? I, I, I wouldn't say I'm proud of the poetry I produce, and, but, I, but I try. And I, 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 I try. And, and, then, and when I work with Francis, I actually took photographs. And, oh, cool! And wrote flash flash fiction around them. So just I concocted stories that are like two hundred fifty to five hundred words maps, and for each photograph that I took during, and I, I did that all semester long. In addition to the case studies and theoretical papers and lit reviews that I was doing under his supervision. That's incredible. Um, the interdisciplinarity <laughs> of the work that you did because uh, I know also that you were doing very rigorous academic study as well um, but that your advisors some of who I also had probably not just only encouraged you but um, well encouraged you but what I'm thinking of is that identity paper that we had to do in I think it's the first semester of work at Goddard, the G1 semester um, in the IMA program, where we're required, and I think this is true of all Goddard programs, to reflect on what we ourselves are bringing to the work. Like, you know, how, how does this work change us? How do we change the work? And um, I love that you got to play with different forms of art, which you probably wouldn't have done in a traditional psychology program <laughs> unless it was like art therapy or drama therapy or something. But um, but then it's for a, speci- uh, a specific end. Um, did the photography and the flash fiction and the poetry um, and the memoir did these types of creative outlets spur on your desire to, uh, well, yes, your desire to do the MFA, but. Um, well, with regards to the MFA, uh, it's all right. <laughs> I, 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 it did, I would say that it did spur my desire to do an MFA. And I, I, when I finished the IMA program, I was really left with this feeling of, well, you know, I could, I, I could be a better write, creative writer. And mm. and the thing is, the creative writing, uh, doing a, an MFA in creative writing has always been in the horizon for me. But the way I envisioned it, I've always thought that it would be something I do when I retired. Like, mm. so I would, I would do an IMA, the IMA, and then either pr- do a PhD or just uh, pursue an academic career. And at the end of my academic career, maybe I'll do an MFA in creative writing and live out my retirement years 
writing children's books and literary works. But so obviously I shuffle things around <laughs> because I'm not in retirement age right now. <laughs> um, uh, so I, it did. I, I wanted, there are two things. I wanted to be a better writer, but I also have this story to tell that I was, I had this burning feeling that I needed to tell this story, which is what drove the pursuit of the suicide and creativity study in the first place. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a suicide attempt survivor. I wrestled with various mental health conditions throughout my life, uh, from debilitating anxiety and depression to persecutory delusions that forces beyond my control were conspiring against me. So, um, which landed me in a mental hospital during my undergraduate years. So I, I would, touch upon those aspects of my life in the I, in the IMA program but it's it's I, I was dancing around it is mm-hmm. what I felt like that there, there's something to be told here but I I didn't think I could do it to do both my you know my scholarly carry out my scholarly agenda and do a memoir well probably I could have in retrospect <laughs> you know do write both a memoir and the the, the a thesis on suicide and creativity but I feel like I in order for me to tell that story I also needed to become a better writer and learn the craft and discipline of creative writing and that's why I pursued an MFA in writing and also at that point uh, I was beginning to envision a life where I didn't do a PhD anymore because an MFA okay. is a terminal degree. And mm. I thought I might just end like my academic, not, uh, you know, my, my studies, my formal schooling with an MFA in creative writing. And that's why I, rather than wait until late age to pursue an MFA, I just decided immediately after the IMA program to to do an MFA in creative writing. You, you know, what's so amazing about that, Mike, is that I love that you had this sort of construct, which I think a lot of people get into a mindset around sort of, you know, what's the, you know, what's the timeline and what's the agenda and what's my, you know, sort of scope I'm going to do. And you're talking about, oh, well, I'll do this, you know, creative writing after and I'll, I'll write children's books after I retire, you know, because you already had sort of this idea of what you've gone through and now you're going to create sort of this academic to have a, a work output, you know, this is my career. Um, and yet, that burning desire, you know, to continue that and to be not only become a better writer, but also something that you had to express and continue on and do so in a long format. And it couldn't wait for 40 or 50 years before you were able to do that. It, it just tells me as an educator and shows to me how that, you know, and then you, you've pursued the PhD after, which I can't wait to hear about. But um, it shows that um, that continued desire within us is Usually, I don't want to say always because that's kind of a, um, a probably not a great thing to always say, but um, that, that desire, there's something, you know, you talk about be, being a being, you know, and, and the, these sort of, you know, um, forces that attempt that. Um, I know that uh, my last quote uh, at Goddard at my graduation was a Ron Miller quote, and it talks about holistic education as something that is beyond sort of just the mechanistic law of how we see sort of the structure of learning and academics. And really, it's the force that causes us to have to continue on in that direction as human beings. And that might come in a traditional schooling sense, or it might not. But I love that you just allowed yourself to continue on like that and and, and, and um, continued into that program because there was more of your story that needed to be tell, told and also um, even greater as well, at the same time, skills that you wanted to further develop. 
So that's, that's, and what was that program like for you as you came out of the creative writing and then you went into sort of, I mean, the creative, the individualized study into the creative writing and you started building that up. Was that a tough transition? Was it, was it natural? Did you, what were the different challenges you felt in each of those, Mike? I think it's, I, now that you mention it, um, it, it was a tough transition because they're very different programs, the IMA program and the MFA in creative writing program. And, and I, I imagine you know that like the, the 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 programs the different programs in their guard or have their you know they're all unique in their own ways, but I think it's it was a tough transition for for a variety of reasons. One, I felt like you know I, many people who were in the at least when I entered the MFA program, many people there were they had backgrounds in English and literature. They had majored in English as undergraduates or done creative writing. And I all the creative writing I had done and that I had to show for, what were those the small pieces that I had written uh, during my time mm-hmm. as an IMA student, which were which were quite a bit, but uh, but I of the ones that I thought were usable uh, because. Uh, because I think the difference was that when I was doing creative writing at in the IMA program, I was writing as a form of self-discovery. I wasn't writing to impress, you know. Yeah. <laughs> really, my creative writings were for me, and their mm-hmm. their purpose is really self-discovery and self-reflection and analysis. But mm-hmm. when I had to pick writing samples for the MFA program, I had to switch to a different mindset and look at craft. What is mm-hmm. going to impress a committee of creative writers? Um, and I didn't have much, <laughs> you know. I, I feel like I came into that program with the requisite number that I needed for the application, the writing samples. And so, compared to everyone, I felt very behind in the sense mm. that I was, I was the most. I was the least experienced creative writer, not the least experienced writer, because the IMA program I produced quite a lot during that time. I really immersed myself. And and to this day, I would say that my the two years that I was in the IMA program remain like to this day the most productive I've ever been in my in my whole life in terms of writing and creativity and productivity. But when I entered the MFA program, I was um, I was surrounded by people who I thought were leagues ahead of me in terms of um, writing you know, r- r- creative writing uh, chops and and output and productivity, and also the structure was very different. It um, th- whereas with the IMA program, there's a lot there's a lot of flexibility in terms of not just what you did and how you did things. The requirements in the MFA program were were very clear cut. You do a certain number of annotations. Throughout the program, uh, you you read a certain number of literary works on which you write these two to two, four page critical annotations, and then you produce a certain you're expected to produce a certain number of creative output every week, or, well every th- packet period every three weeks, and then you know we have to do a short two short critical essays, a long critical paper, which those were easy for me, <laughs> you know, with my scholarly <laughs> background. Those were actually the the assignments that gave me the least problem yeah. um so i guess for that in in that case it was kind of flipped where that was what 
some of my peers had the most difficulty within the IMFA program, whereas for me that was like breathing, mm-hmm. water, you know, <laughs> breathing air. But um, <laughs> but for but for them, the creative writing part came naturally, and for me, it I for me like doing when I was in the MFA program, just producing a single page of creative writing took longer mm-hmm. than it would take me to produce a single page of scholarly writing. So right. um, so I was. So th- that's, I, I felt like I was producing the very bare minimum for each packet. Whereas in the IMA program, I would sometimes produce like 60, 80 page packets, you know, in three weeks yeah. time. Uh, MFA program is so different. It's just like I was, uh, it was flipped for me. That stretch though, right? That stretch for you, Mike, it's probably wonderful. You're able to just continue to you know, be challenged in that way, going from that scholarly world and that kind of writing to creativity. Yeah, it, it was a real challenge. It was, it was, I was really stretching myself, but there came a point where, I, it, where it just clicked. At some point, it does click. Mm-hmm. Um, were, were you focusing specifically on memoir at, during the MFA program or... Were you able to play in different genres? I was focusing mostly on memoir and the my memoir specifically. And I, in terms of reading, like we we had where we had flexibility is choosing what to add to our reading lists. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I read mostly memoirs, I actually did read quite a bit of fiction. And I I feel because partly because when I wrote my memoir, I didn't want to. I didn't want to adopt a retrospective narrative style when writing my memoir. I actually yeah. wanted to immerse my readers in what is happening. So I wanted to, it to be in, in the moment. So I thought mm-hmm. I could learn a lot from fiction writers um, when writing my memoir. So I, so it's, it's, I think some, some students in the MFA program were able to juggle, like they have their primary genre and they might, produce short works in other genres. I could not do that <laughs> because yeah. again, I was already a slow creative writer at the time. And for me to think about having two genres to work mm-hmm. with um, would have been would have been really difficult for me then. But I did what I did do is attend workshops in other genres during the residency. So I might attend a workshop on how to create um, how to generate ideas for a short story collections or uh, workshops and poetry. Again, not my strongest suit. (laughs) (laughs) And I might, I I did, I remember also attending workshops on um, playwriting that, that were, were great for me because even when you work within the confines of a particular genre, you're always borrowing from other genres of creative writing. Um, Poetry tend, you know, taught me the art of brevity uh, and, uh, and you and how to, you know, create powerful emotional and affective messages visually. Um, mm-hmm, how to mm-hmm. write in a visual way. So that poetry was very useful in my memoir writing in that regard. And again, fiction writing was helpful for me. I I, I was particularly attracted to minimal minimalist fiction writers. Uh, okay. So that really influenced the structure of my memoir. Like like who. Who were your biggest influences on the memoir that you ended up producing? Uh, let's see. Uh, literary influences, uh, whether it's memoir or not. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think I for memoirs, I've, I've some of the ones that have been influential to me were um, Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life. Uh, okay. 
I think uh, there was some, there's just something about the writing style of that that was very, um, it was, I, I think the prose was very simple. But a simple prose that does not mean, you know, simple ideas. You can com communicate ideas that are very complex using very simple prose. And I really appreciate the straightforwardness of Wolf's language. I also appreciated um, Susanna Kaysen's Girl Interrupted, definitely. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. uh, she's, she wrote about something that's very much content-wise. It's close to home, her own admission sure. to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, and I, I love her vignette writing style where she's not really bound by a chronological linear narration she would mm -hmm. jump you know back and forth in time but you know a memoir can like all memoirs have a beginning middle and end but it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have to be told in that way <laughs> so that's another thing that i learned mm -hmm. uh that was very valuable to me is that i can play with temporality um mm -hmm. in my memoir and there's also Catherine Harrison's The Kiss, and, I, and it's a memoir of her incestuous relationship with her father. Oh, wow. Okay. And the impact on that, of that on her, her life, basically. Uh, and and I, that was useful to me because she plays around with, um, with time also, but, but she's able to show how the adult self is inseparable from the child self. Basically, mm. she would when she's telling the story, she would intersperse um, flashbacks from childhood in the middle of her writing, and I did something similar with my memoir too, like how to show the impact of childhood and experiences that we've had in our formative years on on our adulthood and our present lives. So, uh, being able to play with time that way was useful to me. Yeah, so um, yeah, so those those are some on the memoir side. As mm -hmm. for fiction. One of the writers that I really, really enjoy reading is uh, Mary Robeson. Uh, she wrote this novel called Why Did I Ever? And it's when she wrote that, she, she originally wrote that on a bunch of index cards. So um, I think she wrote it, she, it. The novel, it's like 200 pages. It consists of 500 vignettes. That, that, um, and each vignette could, some of them are as little as one word. Um, others, the, the longest vignette, if my memory serves me right, was like four pages, and it was wow. great. Just it's it's to have this really fragmented writing style, but it really puts the you know it's it, it forces the author to really be mindful of how pieces are juxtaposed together to create mm -hmm. meaning and effect. Mm -hmm. So those are just, yeah, those are just some of the literary influences um, that I carry with me to this day when I do my creative writing. That's incredible. Um, I know that you have finished uh, The Color of Dusk, your memoir. Uh, was th That was the memoir that you were writing at the MFAW, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have... Uh, future publication plans for that i i do it it's because i i i it's almost like i, I put i put it on hold and i didn't really mean to i put it on hold because i i did end up pursuing a phd immediately the mfa after all <laughs> because I, I i mentioned earlier that when i did the mfa program i actually thought about maybe not doing a phd anymore but mm -hmm. um but that's another but well the reason the phd happened is actually that i i, I just applied for one phd program thinking i wasn't going to get in <laughs> and i just said Let, let's just shoot an application <laughs> yeah. uh, 
funny. My partner wanted to move to Western Mass. Uh, when I was doing the MFA uh, in creative writing, I we were living in Somerville, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and he, he wanted to move to Western Mass. And I said, well, there, there's a, there's UMass Amherst that's right there. Why don't I see which PhD? At this point, I've already given up on psychology. And I okay. said, you know, I'm not going to do psychology anymore because it's just not for me anymore. I, my, my priorities have changed. So have my, you know, outlook on the world. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I, I said, let's see what PhD programs um, UMass has. And I found communication w- would be the one that could accommodate. My, and welcome my interests. So I applied thinking I'm not going to get in. <laughs> and th- this was on my final year in the MFA program. And then I, okay. and then I got, I, I got in. I, I, when I got the acceptance letter, I had forgotten that I had applied. I said, <laughs> what, what, is, I said what, what is this? Why are you sending me a letter? <laughs> and, oh, and then I'm like, all oh, right, I applied for this a few months ago. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I'm get, going on a tangent here. But really, uh, so yes, I do intend to move forward with the memoir. I, I kind of put it on hold because I was doing a PhD. And mm-hmm. um, and then I, but now that I've completed the PhD, I, I, I do want to move forward with it. I have, I mean, it's represented by an agent uh, at the moment, and I have made revisions to the memoir after not touching it for however many years. I've made revisions to it over the summer, and I wrote a book proposal for it. Uh, it's it's quite shocking wow. that you still have to write a book proposal for a memoir. <laughs> um, you don't have to do that for fiction. Uh, fiction. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> they just submit it under fiction. So. Yeah. <laughs> just read the whole thing, okay? <laughs> yeah. Query letter is all you need for fiction. Um, oh, man. <laughs> for a memoir, you need the query letter to get an agent, and then, <laughs> then you still need the book proposal, even if the memoir is already completed. Um, so I have had wow. to do reverse outlining and write a proposal based on the finished product. Um, <laughs> so that's done. So I, I'm just uh, basically waiting. I've sent all these to my agent and I'm just waiting for yeah. for like the next word <laughs> on what will happen next. So that's that. I mean, ho- I'm hoping that it will, it will begin to go out to market, as they say, sometime in the next couple of months. But yeah, How, hopefully great. there will be a, um, it will not have much difficulty finding a publisher and but because I would like this story to go out in the world absolutely now more than ever yeah absolutely the timing of that would be so helpful for so many right now Mike absolutely and you know I just listened to your story unfolding here and and as we transition to you out of Goddard you know and going into your PhD and then after that and the things you've written and and now becoming a um, uh, a faculty member and all those kind of things um I guess I just see you in, in myself and so many others, I think, like Amanda and her journey, and I'm sure many others that we will um, encounter. And there's there's so much history and past to what brings us to Goddard, uh, what we learn and grow from being at Goddard, and then what we take that back out into the world again um, once we leave Goddard. So can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, you said you forgot about your PhD program, which is a little Goddardy, right? I mean, like the idea of like, oh, we're just going to throw and see what happens. <laughs> against the wall, right? That's very much, Amanda had another program in California, you know, and I just was like yeah. a month out of undergrad. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to grad school out here in Vermont in this weird low residence. What? What's happening? So I think <laughs> it's, um, I'd love to hear just sort of 
how then transitioning from, you know, because it seems like there's been some pivots for you from the psychology realm to the sort of openness of what you're studying in, in, your, in your first graduate program at Goddard and then going to the creative writing process. And that's a whole other thing, right? You're trying to sort of um, tackle and then going to a PhD, which we know has a lot of um, end, end structures, right, that have to sort of occur to get that kind of degree. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey in the PhD? And then, you know, and I can see now when we listen to your sort of background and what you're doing um, now, how all of those things have sort of coalesced and communicated and come together and what you're producing and sharing. Um, so I'd love to hear about that as well, Mike. So. Yeah, definitely have been a lot of shifts. I, I like your use of the word pivot because I feel as if I'm I'm like marching forward and then I'm doing an about face and then <laughs> doing another about face. <laughs> and and it, it's, you know, I think from an outsider, it may seem as if, you know, I, I, I mean, I have degrees in psychology and then creative writing and well, the individualized studies. And then I did a PhD in communication and did a, a grad certificate in film. And an outsider might look at this and be like, this guy is just accumulating degrees. <laughs> we, we have ourselves a lifelong student here. <laughs> that's great, right? That's great. And that's, that's very goddardy. It's very interdisciplinary, right? It's very uh, liberal arts minded and, and shows that connectivity, right? So what you studied has affirmed that because of what you're getting out of that. So, I mean, it's but also, also, I will say that uh, Mike is exceptional at all of those things, right. which can be very frustrating <laughs> for like, you know, the lay person. <laughs> but yes, that's it. <laughs> I, but I think it, it took a while. And even now, I still wonder if I'm able to really create a, you know, a, a unified whole for these varied interests. And sometimes I feel as if, you know, they can exist in tension and that's okay. You know, uh, I mean, I have these different areas of interest and th there is a recurring thread among them. Right. And one of them is to honor the perspectives of stigmatized individuals in their own subjective terms. That's that's a key um, thread in all of my work. I, I want to, for instance, I want to know what suicidal individuals make of their experiences with, a f a f you know, depression, um, their, their questions. Uh, about life and death and the meanings thereof, I, I want to arrive at those from the perspective of those wrestling with those experiences, not from some top-down approach that you know, like a, right. like the bio, you know, the dominant biopsychiatric model. I wanted to honor the pers the lived experience of those who are in in those circumstances. So that's mm -hmm. that's definitely one of them. But sometimes I, because even now I find myself wondering about you know where what is the place of my creative writing now that because i'm back i'm back in academia <laughs> you know i am back in the realm of scholarship and and sometimes i wonder uh how i mean how can i make room for my creative endeavors still and mm -hmm. and there are going to be tensions moving forward but and but sometimes there are going to be overlaps so for instance uh you know, I've been dabbling recently in performance autoethnography. It's something I've been reading up on, and it's a, it's a, and I, I think I think that the, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a way for me to bridge scholarship and creative practice mm -hmm. um, in a very holistic and organic way. Which is not to say that's the only way I will do that, but, but I, so definitely a lot of pivots and. And 
but I think I'm at the point where I can, I can, I have all these, you know, the, the, the great thing about being interdisciplinary in this way is that I'm never running out of ideas. It's just, I can look at something and see, well, how would uh, a film scholar look at this? Or how mm-hmm. would absolutely a, a, a creative writer write about this experience? Mm-hmm. Or how would a communication scholar with an interest in technology um, approach mm-hmm. this? And so it, it's, I'm never, I, I, I'm never at a shortage of ideas to write about, but, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately there are only so many hours in a day. So <laughs> I, I, I feel as if I can't re- you know, there, there are so many things to pursue, but maybe I'm the one, one of the things that's beginning to dawn on me is how short life really is. Um, I mean, life is both long and short, it's that uh, you know that I I may never be able to pursue everything I want to in a single lifetime, <laughs> and I, I, that's beginning to dawn on me too. But that doesn't mean I won't get to pursue a lot of different things. It's just there's going to be so many more that that I will have to save for the for the for the next lifetime. <laughs> so. Yeah, coming to peace with that is really I think important too, right? Because we always want to, you know, Father Time is undefeated, right? They always say, you know, it's, it is marching on, and so the idea of trying to do as much as we can is wonderful, but also recognizing when you're a creative, liberal arts, you know, interdisciplinary person who is always connecting ideas and thoughts and subjects, yeah, that's that's going to be an endless pursuit, right? Which is which is amazing, and also recognizing that um, there'll always be left more more to be done uh, in humanity and with others. So finding things that you're interested in care about, Mike, and, and then producing wonderful things, which obviously you already have. I mean, look at what you're putting out there in the world already. It's And during the time period in which this is being done now, it's so critical, especially with the increase in what's happening in suicides throughout the world and the United States and everything. And so, and depression, anxiety, growth, and all of that. So I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about this year and what you're doing and, and how that's been reflective and, and shown up and how you can help others that way. Yeah, I I mean this the, the moment we are in just has a lot of um repercussions for some of the a lot of the things that I study like suicide mental health uh ju- mm-hmm. at least the increased risk of suicide that's being projected but uh and just you know I I mean uh, one of the themes of my work is intersubjectivity interconnectedness but which is very difficult in the time that we're living in um so and and so i'm very appreciative of this opportunity that we're right now we're we're connecting (laughs) you know the three of us are connecting but it's it's a difficult time and and just and even what it means for human creativity uh what it means for our understanding of mortality uh I, i i one of the things that I'm studying right now is end of life communication and how is our understanding of mortality be and our comfort with mortality being upended by the ever present uh, ever presence and salience of death in in our times. Mm-hmm. You uh, are writing. You're the lead author, um, and you're writing a book right now um, that will be published when in May, or the a plague for our time, de- dying and death in the age of COVID nineteen. Oh, th- that one has uh, it, it's still in 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 progress, but um, yes, we I mean we have a publisher, uh, McFarland, mm-hmm. and well, initially we were aiming for a. May uh, a, comp- a like a 
the completion of the draft by this May, which is very ambitious okay. because we just yeah. signed the contract in October <laughs> and and May is really ambitious. That's that's less than a year. But uh, but I, I it, it's it's funny you asked about that because my co-authors and I just some recently came to an agreement that maybe we should take a little bit more time, not that much more, mm-hmm. but because there's so many things that are developing. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have, there is a light at the end of the tunnel in the form of vaccines, but the the distribution of vaccines is still you know it's there's there's still many things about it that it's uncertain and one of the things that interests me and my colleagues is uh who's going to be prioritized in mm. in receiving the vaccine and then what kind of disparities are going to surface between the global north and the global south and how would these distribution practices uh reflect what we call the mortal economy, whose lives are privileged and whose lives are not, mm-hmm. whose deaths are grievable and whose deaths are not. So um, there are many issues waiting to be explored there. And 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 sometimes waiting a little bit more longer just to be able to capture these other slices. Because this pandemic, I think one of the challenges with this, with researching and writing about the pandemic, as opposed to the things I've done in the past is that my past research endeavors have looked at things that are already complete, that have already come to pass. It could be the life of a person whose life has already ended. Um, but of course, you know, every life is always, um, when new information about a person surfaces, we're, we're always reconfiguring understanding of that person. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, but the thing with the pandemic is it's still ongoing. Uh, like new, th- like there's at, at a very rapid pace new new information yeah. is coming to light uh previously held assumptions are being challenged so we have to be very fluid in our approach and methodologies and that's been a challenge actually so and and it, we we're we're like constantly i wouldn't say constantly but we have to be open to modifying our approach but also modifying our timeline so a uh, long-winded way to answer your question of when will this come out it, I, most likely sometime next year, because no matter how fast we try to work at this, even if we were to meet our May draft delivery date, we'll still have to go through peer review, revision, mm-hmm. production takes time from top typesetting, copy editing, and indexing. The, that part I do not look forward to. <laughs> I, no one looks forward to indexing their, their work. No. <laughs> I, I, at least I don't. I did that for my 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 latest book, The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity. I did, I did not like it. <laughs> so did you did you have to do it yourself? I did. The indexing. I okay. did. I mm. I got a little I, I got a little help from my partner. <laughs> like you read it, I'm sick of it. <laughs> well, I think it's because, what's this about? <laughs> I think it's because I've read my own work so many times now at sure. this point. Like to write it, rewrite, reread it, copy edit it when I and when I got reviewer feedback. And and I do not look forward to that with the COVID nineteen book at, mm-hmm. at all, like indexing. You know what's but, interesting? Um, well, I, no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, but I have co-authors, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. you, you have the co-authors will help with that. Yeah. What's mm-hmm. interesting when you talk about there on the on the you know pandemic and the timeline, right? Being in the middle of it, right? And the new things are coming to light and being fluid in that, and then talking about how that works with suicide and depression and those kind of elements, you know, it's funny because you look at the history of pandemics, uh, they don't happen in this sort of vacuum of 
two weeks or a month, right? We, you know, the least amount of ones are 18 months at the very minimum. And in the mm-hmm. 21st century, in the world in which we live, where everything is information is just so quick, instantaneous and changing rapidly. And yet now we're faced with something that has a much longer timeline and something we don't really want to n- initially think about when something of that onset is on. You know, Amanda and I talked about this in our weekly meeting. It's like, no, you know, all the historians kind of said, and the medical experts kind of said, this is an 18 month minimum, you know, and it's going to be probably longer mm-hmm. than that, obviously. Um, but it's like, that's kind of the history of these kind of things. And so <clears throat> balancing on what that looks like. And then when you add in elements of depression and anxiety and, you know, economic and how that distribution sort of works and privilege, um, it's, it's a long stem kind of thing that's drawn out and how that sort of affects people um, in interesting ways. So it's weird because I think in some ways when you guys are writing this, you're like, I want to sort of grab hold of the moment and discuss this to help as many people at time, but being fluid in that must be really important to make sure facts and figures and timelines and, and what comes out of that, you know, um, um, work is really important, especially for the next pandemic, right? And the next time people are facing mm-hmm. this as well. Yeah, because that's also one of the challenges um, about writing about something like this is that, I mean, most likely by the time the book is out, I mean, I'm hoping, I mean, that that we would have some sort of herd immunity via vaccine, you know, mass vaccine distribution. But even when when the book does come out, we'll still be grappling with the effects of this pandemic for many years ahead. And so I, I don't want this to just, I, I want this COVID-19 book to serve multiple purposes. One is to cap, you know, to make sense of death and our understanding of death and how it's been perhaps challenged or tested during this situation that we we find ourselves in globally. But also, how can this serve as a guide for moving forward? And that's all that's a challenge in that I I want this to be particular, but I also want it to have lessons that will transcend the the the, the, the moment about which it was written, which is the pandemic. So, um, yeah, it, it's going from the general to the particular and back from the particular to the general. That's I think that's one of the challenges of this book. And it's going to, I would like it to, to be both. Um, what are some of the issues that you and your co-authors are planning to cover in this book, in the COVID-19 book? Um, yeah, so... Th- as when as we had originally envisioned the book, I, I emphasize the word originally envisioned sure. because there have been other topics that we suddenly find ourselves wanting to write about that were not in mm. our original plan. But okay. we have divided it into four thematic parts. So one part is death denial, like uh, how you know uh, how you know, what are some of the death-denying practices that we engage in uh, mm-hmm. and what values are these death-denying practices connected to and how have they exacerbated the pandemic? So just to give mm-hmm. an example, um, uh, like American exceptionalism would be one kind mm-hmm. of value. Mm-hmm. And American exceptionalism is a value that trickled down to our very quotidian practices and it, which is entangled with things like masculinity, rugged individualism, right. even the refusal to wear a mask um, yeah. it can itself be an expression of heteronormative masculinity, at least in American context. And, right. you know, so the way we perform things like gender, gender performativity is inextricable from public health. 
because mm-hmm. as we are seeing now, to perform being male in an American context, this can be, have disastrous consequences for the public and collective good. Mm-hmm. So, it, so we are looking at those practices that deny death or disavow death or minimize mortality mm-hmm. and um, what values they're tapping into. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one part. Another part of our book is um, communities that are especially disadvantaged by this pandemic. Uh, communities of color, frontline workers, uh, people with mental health conditions, just to name a few. That's not mm-hmm. a you know an encompassing list. And sure. in turn, what kind of practices do they engage in to restore human dignity? Uh, okay. So that's part two. Part three of the book deals with technology. I mean, that's one of my interests at the moment. Um, and mm-hmm. basically how have, in the, the context of stay-at-home orders, uh, shelter-in-place orders, uh, and reasonable fears of contagion and social and physical distancing, uh, how has technology, how have we capitalized on technology to facilitate communal mourning and grief in the face of loss? Uh so that that's another aspect, and lastly, uh, the classroom and um, pedagogy. I have, you know, as, as an educator, I have a really strong interest in pedagogy, specifically death education. Um, and there's a significant lack of death education in higher education institutions, at least here in the U.S. And um, so, one of the other interests that my co-authors and I share is. Uh, how have um, how can we prepare younger generations in to be able to talk about death, to talk about the dying, about death, how to communicate with the dying and the bereaved, and how mm-hmm. to cultivate a more dialogic relationship with death. Um, and and the way we see it, it, it that's something like that can really take place in the classroom if we allow it to. But there's mm-hmm. so many fears about breaching the subject of death in higher education that yeah that gets in the way of that and in this pandemic you know we can't ignore the fact that we have students that may be facing loss outside the classroom which is which in turn is impacting their performance in the physical or virtual classroom so how do mm-hmm. we create space where it is permitted to discuss loss and mortality mm. in all their human complexity so those are like the a general outline of the book as we had envisioned it. <laughs> so it's like that, that's great. That's a lot, um, and I can see why it's a moving target, especially right now. Um, uh, I was thinking when you were talking about death denial, this may not fit into that that area, but I I didn't watch the whole thing. I've seen clips, but I was very emotional about um, our now President Biden mm-hmm. starting off his presidency or the night before he he was sworn in with that memorial for COVID victims. And um, I was just, I, I was trying to unpack why I felt so. I mean, obviously, I know this is happening. I read the news every day. I, I see that you know, what, when we pass certain thresholds of numbers um, of people who died. Um, but I think 
I think one of the reasons was that we haven't been able to, like, we haven't had that. We haven't had this, like, national day of mourning or acknowledgement <laughs> from from the higher up, um, you know, like, fr- from our leaders, from our American leaders, Um until until then and it surprised me that that wasn't something that we had done and um it it moved me that this was how we were starting off so i was like hopeful in that way yeah me too when i it it, it was a really deeply affecting moment uh, in in many ways because we we have just passed the threshold of 400,000 deaths nationwide yeah. i mean globally the numbers are staggering too but mm-hmm. here it's we have reached it and it has not been quite a year yet since the pandemic struck us and mm-hmm. but but just to see that it's finally acknowledged um in such a way not just the numbers i mean we see statistics of the pandemic um if we if we choose to look that is sure but to have it made concrete that loss con- made concrete in such a way it, it it's also a very sobering moment mm-hmm. to, to to acknowledge the magnitude of that loss and there will be more losses uh but and hope but hopefully that under you know <laughs> uh, that, that under a new administration that those losses will be somewhat curbed it's, it's also an interesting um paradox and, and and that kind of occurs also you know my wife is a, a nurse at a nursing home and she's lost several of uh, her residents um, to an outbreak that occurred recently and it's just heartbreaking and she she contracted covid as well and um, she's healing from that though now which is which is wonderful still has some symptoms but you know when we think about that from a global perspective or from a, a American centric perspective, you know, and that, that kind of reality, both cases and, and the effects of that and, and the, the um, sort of um, fatigue that occurs with that and the deaths and that level. And we think about them in terms of numbers and then also, you know, the grieving process on the individual families. And it's been an interesting way to sort of see death and, and think about it, you know, um, having this political conversation and this ideas about how those things are sort of magnified and individualized and collectively sort of viewed both, you know, um, both from a, a very, you know, intense moment and then also from like sort of this 30,000 foot view. Mike, can you speak to the, that idea about how grieving and, and that kind of, um, end of life um, sort of understanding how, how that measures differently when we're talking about someone we're close to, you know, and someone we know or work with or, you know, take care of or whatever, you know, a family or whatever. And then what's that also look like and, and why do we disconnect sometimes or have a moment, as Amanda said, where we had this, this kind of moment of collective grieving as, as a nation as well. Um, and what, what those kind of challenges are and what that means, what that looks like in that context, Mike. Yeah, I mean that's that's. I mean, thank you for that question. It's a very loaded question, and and I think too, and and I, I just that, I I mean, even grieving collectively has been made difficult. Uh, you know, I mean, when we, well, when we think about the good death, what does it mean to to have a good death? Uh, I of course notions of a good death are very culturally bound. Like in American context, it's going to be very difficult than it is elsewhere, but at least in 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 our immediate cultural context, what is a good death? It's being surrounded by your loved ones at the end of your life. 
it's um, being able to say goodbye or you know being able having the time to make final preparations to leave parting thoughts and words and so and a lot of it a good death places a lot of emphasis on proximity and mm-hmm. proximity and preparation are things that that are in the context of a pandemic are are not guaranteed um, yeah, and definitely. I mean, and how, what kind of workarounds do we find? And when we do find those workarounds, are they are they adequate? And I mean, I don't want to make answers, you know, like provide answers for these, but just to be to say goodbye to someone via via like an iPad. It, it's mm-hmm. it. There's something heartbreaking about not being able to hold the hands of someone you are about to lose, and I think mm-hmm. what, what another challenge that this pandemic has introduced is that you don't. It's it's almost like a um. Like how how do you say goodbye when you don't know if a person's condition will take a turn for the worse? Uh, mm-hmm. Because some people who are who contract the virus go on to be fine. But mm-hmm. some might be fine and then s- suddenly take a turn for the worse. And that does not leave much room for farewells, really. And so it, it's really... Up, what is, so I think the question is, what does it mean to have a good death in the pandemic? Um, or is a good death possible in the pandemic? And and I, 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 it's strange that I'm answering your question with questions, but I think uh, part of this is that I... In some ways, I am because the situation that we are in is still unfolding. Mm-hmm. It's you know I'm reluctant to make definitive answers, but I I have these thoughts that I think are work. I, 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 these are thoughts that I've been reflecting on, and I think many people have been reflecting on those too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I also I wanted to say that I'm glad that your you know your wife is on demand. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. One little disclosure too is that, and I have not made this public, uh, but I think there's something you know that, that I think there's value in making it public is that I actually contracted COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it's so ironic because when I got COVID nineteen, it happened to be the week that I was signing my book deal for the COVID nineteen book, and <laughs> it's it's really there's really something, I, I, and I even thought about the irony of it. I said, well. <laughs> I mean, this is quite odd, you know, it's suddenly what I was, because I always write about things that are personal, my memoir, my suicide and creativity book, and then even my dissertation on internet and suicidality is personal too, because of my experiences with suicide. And I thought that the COVID-19 book, even though the COVID-19 is something that we are all experiencing, it's personal for us in many levels, but I, I didn't think it would. I, I thought this is the first book that I've had that is personal, but not that personal. And then suddenly <laughs> it became personal. <laughs> and the, the, at my university, where we're required to test every week, so mm-hmm. I get, I got, you know, I, I get tested every week. And I thought, you know, I got, I dropped, I, I, I got my the results of my latest test, and I thought this is just going to be the same old. It's going to read negative. And I open it. It says 
you know, in bold red letters, positive. And I thought, oh, oh wow, man. oh, suddenly, and I, I, I called and I just said, is this real? And, or is this just a flip? <laughs> um, because I've been getting consistently negative test results. And they said, no, they said that, uh, you know, faculty have actually, there's actually been an uptick in, in um, positive rates for faculty. So they, they've been running tests twice. And, and the person on the other end of the line said, well, so we, we actually ran your test twice. And it, unfortunately, it is positive. Mm. So, but I was very concerned at the time because, you know, uh, like I said, it, you could, I'm very fortunate. Obviously, I'm here speaking to you with you and I'm fine. But it was quite uh, nerve wracking when, when, when you get that test result and you're in like day, however many days it is. Because by the time you test positive, it, you've already been infected for a few days. So right. I was probably already on day four. And, and I thought, you know, I was reading up on it like, well, if things are going to take, the turn for the worst that usually happens from day five to 10. And so it was just nerve wracking. I said, am I going to go to bed and then wake up? Do I have to be afraid that things will turn for the worst when they wake up the next morning? And so I was just on countdown. I was in my room, locked up in my room. Uh, my partner was delivering food to the doorstep. I was like, a, I was like an animal. Dude, exactly. <laughs> it was like masked up, leaving it on the doorstep. All right, honey, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, exactly the same thing. I am sure that was with the same with you and your wife. It's just um, she's just in her room, and she, I, and I I dare not go into common spaces. And if I do have to run to the bathroom, I'm wearing a mask, and it's very minimal. Like I'm there for like. Two minutes max, and then I run back in, and I have to take sponge baths in my room because oh, <laughs> with a wet towel. You know, I mean, I mean, not you know, not just it, it, it got to that, but you know, I, I made it. I passed the 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 days that are of utmost concern. But I guess, I, I guess, what I'm, I guess, to go back to my original point, it's just things can always take a turn for the worse, and that that really just. It's an assault on any kind of preparation we normally make for for caring for someone whose condition may take you know just mm. take a turn for the worse and just so yeah so that that ex I mean I'm lucky I count myself very fortunate that I ended up getting through it with without really much damage to myself at least not that I know of um, but it, it's. That was that was also a sobering moment for me in that I I was at the point where I, I didn't know whether I will you know I will be okay um, during that at least during from day five to ten I I, I was just. yeah I was always wondering if if this is going to be. Not always, but like I would wonder if. It, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I thought it was well versed on COVID until my my partner got COVID, and it was like, okay, now I'm especially five through ten. I'm reading twenty articles a night and looking up all the mm -hmm. CDC stuff, you know, and just making sure and checking on her all the time and that stuff. I'm like, okay, we have to make sure, you know, across the board. So uh, yeah, that anxiety level, right, and that concern and that turn you talk about, Mike, is is real for a lot of people. Yeah, it's and. Uh, taking your temperature and also I, I have an oximeter at home. So I'm always mm. taking my, like my, the oxygen, my blood oxygen levels. So, and I'm writing these down in the morning and at night and just mm. keeping that up. I, I think it's, it's strange to, to, to 
own the story because I when I when when I this happened I didn't really tell many people. But then it occurred yeah. to me that like maybe it's good to tell people because I, I was reading you know I was reading twenty articles a day when that happened, <laughs> like like you Casey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I learned too that uh, people knowing someone who had actually contracted COVID makes them more careful. Yeah. So I feel like I, I shouldn't be quiet and you know about this. That maybe it's will do some good to just let people know. Well, yes, someone you know had has contracted it. Um, so I've been more open about it lately than I was when I did have it. Yeah, my 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 right. uncle who was kind of a no mask wearing person or whatever, and we're just like you know he's got two pharmacists and you know my wife's a nurse and stuff. You know he was pretty adamant, you know, big conservative on that realm and like. Ashley gets COVID, and now he was the first one in line to get his vaccine when it opened up here a day oh, ago wow. in Washington oh. to get his vaccine. So that was a real sign of progress for him and open that up. You know, when you're connected to those experiences for a lot of people, that's when they start to open their mind and think about things differently, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that there are a million things that we could continue to talk about. We didn't even talk about your book. Like we should talk about your book. All right. Um, (laughs) Sure. Let's talk about your book. Because that is a wonderful piece of work you're out. That's out right now. um, That I know a little bit about uh, from, from your work at Goddard and prior the paradox of suicide and creativity So you talked earlier about Rutgers and how you were did a couple of these case studies, psychobiographies, uh, Yukio Mishima um, and others. And then you continued that work at Goddard's IMA program. Um, how much of the work that you continued like has made it into this final version of of the book that is out wherever books are sold <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i i think when a lot of the work that i produced actually made it so the the case yeah. studies i wrote as an undergraduate well sylvia plath and and uh Yuki Omishima made it. Uh, I didn't include Arbus because I feel as if, um, well, there, there's some really great works that have already been written about Arbus. Um, and I feel mm-hmm. like I, I, I mean, there's always something new that a, an author can offer about a, a person. But I, but I just said that, like, I, I just decided that whatever I have on Arbus still needs developing. So if, if I ever do write another book on suicide and creativity, it, Arbus will probably make it then. But mm. the case studies that I wrote during my, I during the IMA program, all of them actually made it into okay. the book. But I did write additional case studies, brand new case studies that I had not done either at Rutgers or Goddard that did make it into the book. Because I, I, I th- when, when I thought that when I proposed to write this book on suicide and creativity and when I found, you know, when I ended up getting a publisher, um, I, I wanted a book that not only captured what I had done, but I also wanted to write something new for it. And it also means revisiting the work that I'd produced earlier. And in some cases, rewriting. <laughs> and I, some of those chapters, I feel as if I've rewritten maybe like 
three, four times um, before the, before they reach the stage that they are now in in the book. But um, but there are also other things I wanted to do for it, like just explore the literature a little more and incorporate mm-hmm. more of the background literature into the book, and and also play around with some some theories that I and make room for those and I so this paradox of suicide and creativity book is the way I see it it's you know it 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 honors the work that I've done but it's not the last word on the subject that Mm I when I was thinking about what to include in it I got a really good advice from one of my advice you know a former advisors and mentor to the and friend to this day from Rutgers and he said to me um George Atwood's his, his name he was the one who supervised my undergraduate thesis when I was at Rutgers and he said you know if in doubt include it that's the, those were his words he didn't say exclude it and on the contrary he said if I if I have any doubt whether I should include something he said include it <laughs> and okay. and that's what I did so uh so it's so, a so to answer your question, a lot of what I've done at Goddard made it, with the exception of the personal creative writing that I've done, because that right. is going to be in the memoir um, instead. So I I took those out, and but it's I would say that sixty percent of the book as it is is based on work that I've done at Rutgers and at Goddard. For those who aren't uh, as familiar with your work as as I have been, uh, can you explain kind of the structure of the of the psychobiographies, what what that means, and um, the structure of the book, and and how you the lenses you use to approach these case studies? Sure. So I I mean. In terms of approach, uh, the word you use is psychobiography, and it's it's psychobiography is not like a biography that looks at the entirety of life of an individual. Well, where what psychobiography is is um, well, it's a psychological biography. But there are many ways to do psychobiography, and one of the ones that I really wanted to avoid is what they call pathography, which is okay. um, psychobiography by diagnosis. Because as I mm. you know, I'm I, I I think there is it's a real disservice to the peop the lives that we are studying when when we just when our default approach is to just look at them psychopathologically and mm-hmm. it it if anything that takes our, our attention away from what their the ex, their experiences mean to them and mm-hmm. so psychobiography is the process is basically you know I I seek there are 10 case studies in the book, um, 10, but one of them is a dual case study of um, Theresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake, who are, who are both artists and are, you know, they were, they were lovers in life. And uh, Theresa Duncan ended her life in 2007 and Jeremy Blake followed her seven days later. So I wrote, rather than writing two case studies on them, I wrote one dual case study. So 11 people, but in 10, 10 chapters, 10 case studies. But when I approached it, I, I really, I, what I did is really immerse myself, not just in biographical data about them, uh, 
it uh, almost always involves reading a full-length or several full-length biographies about each person. But it also, sometimes biographies are not available on each any mm-hmm. and some of the subjects I wrote about. So like in the case of Iris Chang, there was, um, Iris Chang is this um, historian and journalist and social activist who wrote about, uh, who wrote this book called, this powerful book called The Rape of Nanking, which mm-hmm. chronicles the Japan's um, wartime atrocities in the Pacific theater, especially China's former capital, Nanking. And it, there was a biography written about Ch- Iris Chang, but I felt like it was very diagnostic in its approach. Mm. And so what I did was travel to the Hoover archives where she left over 300 boxes of primary source documents. So, you know, for for each case study, I had to basically particularize it to the person that I'm studying. So, Mm -hmm. but but, uh, the process, the recurring process is that I will seek to understand as much as I can about this person's life. Then I will really seek to just immerse themselves in their works. That could be, in the case Mm -hmm. of Iris Chang, all of her writings, or not all of her writings, but her major works and as much of her archival document that I can get my hands on. Or in the case Mm -hmm. of Kurt Cobain, who I also wrote about listening to all his songs and reading Mm -hmm. his published diaries, um, uh, whatever was available to me. And so it was like that, getting familiar with the life, getting familiar with the work, and then situating the life within the work and situating the work within the life. So it's an iterative process. So psychobiography is never really complete because whenever you discover new things that could always reconfigure your understanding of a person. And um, so it's it's like, it's just how do the individual parts give rise to the whole and how does the whole uh, basically color our understanding of those individual parts. So it's kind of, it's that, that's the process. So, um, yeah, so I wrote about 10 individuals, 11 individuals in 10 case studies. And, and so that's, that's how it really is. Uh, and, but in every now and then I would write and explore like pressing questions like, is creativity intrinsically healing? What is their Mm -hmm. relationship between, trauma and temporality or sui- exploring the idea of suicide as authentication, or, which is a theme mm-hmm. that that recurs in, in these individuals' lives and works. And the medicalization of life and death. So I have these themes that I would explore in separate short chapters that I called interludes that, that, mm. uh, that I insert after every two or three chapters. So that's the structure of the book. Um, and, and, and it's it's strange to see it finally published because I've been working on this since I was very young, <laughs> like since undergraduate years, obviously. So, yeah. um, and that's so exciting. Where where might can they where might can they find find your work? So it's uh it's it's published by Roman and Littlefield's Lexington imprint and uh, which is their scholar their scholarly imprint. So it's mostly available online, and so the, really it's just available online. <laughs> um, it's it's an academic title, and what I've so. I've actually, I'm actually, I, I was actually thinking of assigning it to my students <laughs> at my end of life communication, but of course, but I, but I've, uh, so I, I mean, the, what I've been do, what I've done is to actually just um, see if uh, like your local or university library has uh, an institutional ebook version available, 
because you know it can also be purchased as an institutional if you are affiliated with an institution it can also be purchased as an institutional ebook um that if you teach that students can read um so uh yeah so yeah but that, that's it's so to answer your question it's available via roman and littlefield's website or your uh, typical online retailers like amazon um, barnes and noble great thank you for letting our our listeners know that's wonderful I just want to thank Mike for um, his work he's done and and taking the time today and to take us through some of um, his studies and um, what he's putting out there in the world and his his uh, travel before, during, after Goddard. And it's been such an exploration and such an opening um, to think about such crucial work that's always needed and especially needed during uh, the COVID pandemic and what the world is facing collectively. So Thank you for the the healing you're putting out there, Mike, and I, I continue to um, will uh, express your hard work and, and your expertise to those that I come in contact with. And I hope that this podcast gives our listeners um, some insight to that work and 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 to explore that and ideas um, around creativity and end of life um, communication and um, what that looks like in depression and anxiety and suicide and, and those kind of things happening. Um, and I hope they continue to open mindsets, both of your personal journey and how you can help heal and work with others. Um, so thank you for that work. And th- thanks again for, thanks so much for having me here. It's, it's a, uh, it's, it's an honor of being, being invited to, to this podcast and to be given the opportunity to talk about the many things that, that interest me and just get me going. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. Um, we have been friends for a long time. I miss our Korean barbecue, long lunches in Koreatown. <laughs> I know. I, I think I believe the last time we had that was must have been February twenty twenty. Oh my God! It must have been, must have been yeah. that. It must. It might have been one of the last times I was on the subway. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Yes, so I can't wait until we can see each other in person again. And um, I am thrilled that you did this for us, with us today. Uh, I'm excited to share your work with the broader Goddard audience. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our interview with Dr. Mike Alvarez. For more information on his work and resources that we mentioned uh, during the interview, you can find more information in the show notes of this podcast. Also, make sure to check out GoddardAlumni.com. We have a lot of elements and projects going on there, and you can sign up if you are an alumni member of Goddard College. Yeah, some of the projects that we have going on there are uh, the Alumni Weekend Committee is currently seeking Goddard artists to submit designs for the 2021 Alumni Weekend logo. Um, I, Amanda, am co-facilitating anti-racism learning circles uh, starting this month, February. And um, I am also co-facilitating or... Yeah, I guess I'm co-facilitating the Business Happy Hour with Rachel Economy, who you will hear uh, on another podcast. Uh, She has amazing work uh, in design thinking, and we're super excited to talk to her. And she serves with with us on the uh, Goddard Alumni Council, and it's been awesome getting to know her. 
Uh, so thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced and hosted by Casey Corona and Amanda Laxon. It is edited by Amanda Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast.